0: Um, But tonight, Christopher Bea is here. He is the author of Next
1: selected memoir, The Whole Five Feet, here, which we have plenty of tonight, and a frequent
0: contributor to the New York Times Book Review as well as associate editor at Harper's Magazine. Uh, Tonight, he's here reading from his brand new novel, What Happened to Sophie Wilder, uh, published by Tin House, who we love here, so this should be great. So help me in welcoming Mr. Bea. thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Hud Morgan's here, so we can get started. Um, <laughs> in under the gun. Um, thank you all very much for coming. Um, yeah, I'm going to read from my novel, uh, What Happened to Sophie Wilder. Um, I'm going to read just right from the first chapter, so there isn't a lot of uh, warm-up or context that you need. Um, so I'll just sort of go for it. And then, um, if people have questions or anything like that, afterward, we can, we can wrap it up. Okay. Are we good on volume? We're, not, we're, we're fine. Yeah, okay. Before I came to stay at the manse, I lived in an old townhouse on the north side of Washington Square, where my cousin Max and I rented rooms from a middle-aged German man named Gerhard Gottlieb, the uncle of one of Max's old flames. I was never entirely sure what business Gerhard was in, but he was usually out of the country and he gave us the run of the place in his absence, provided we walk his dog, a purebred boxer named Ginger, and feed the tropical fish in his enormous Victorian aquarium. Max and I were the only ones paying rent, but there were often two or three others staying on the vacant floor above us. We were all in the arts, as we like to say with intense but undirected irony, which is what left us free to take Ginger out during the day and to spend our nights entertaining ourselves in that old house, drinking bourbon, smoking those thin, elegant joints that we all rolled so easily. Max was the film critic for a local weekly. He didn't like movies much at least not the ones he was called upon to review. But he felt strongly that a critic who wasn't part of the conversation at a certain point in the night we could use such terms in earnest, was no critic at all. The artist was free to work in isolation, even to cultivate it. But the critic was an explainer. His job depended on an audience, and the audience went to the movies. So, Max said on those evenings when an unseen judge called us to defend the manner in which we spent our days. The part about cultivating isolation he aimed at me. And it was true that no one had read my novel when it came out a few months before, but this wasn't by virtue of any aesthetic stratagem. I would have been more than happy with an audience. My publisher had paid me well and put its energy, as they call it, behind the book. I'd been reviewed where one hopes to be reviewed. Some of the notices had even been good. Max and I share the same last name. Our fathers are brothers, or were while mine was still alive. And there had been brief talk, much of it generated by Max himself, about the Blakemans representing some new cultural moment. That had all passed after my book sank quietly from view. Outside the world of mean-spirited media blogs, no one had any idea who we were. Max secretly faulted me for this, though in truth, people were simply tired of comfortable young white guys from New York. I couldn't blame them. I was tired of us too. For all that disappointment, the money had been real and Gerhard barely charged rent, so I didn't need much to get by. I could live on my advance while I figured out what came next. I understood that I shouldn't expect too much from whatever that turned out to be. i had been given my big chance, more than most get and now I was on my own. In the meantime, we spent long hours in that house talking about the grand gesture, whether it nowadays existed, of what it might consist if it did. We wanted badly to believe it was still possible to live off ideas, except when we wanted badly to believe it was no longer possible. Since then, the failure to do so was not our own, not caused by lack of discipline or talent, or by the fact that we didn't finally want the things we wanted as much as we thought we wanted them. In truth, we were quickly reaching, had likely enough already reached, the age where it no longer made sense to talk about promise. It was around this time that I remarked to Max that no matter what we now achieved, no one would say, he's so young. Precocity had passed us by. After 28, I said sadly, you're judged on your merits. Unless one of us dies, Max corrected me. Then they'll all say he was so young. All of this by way of an honest accounting of where things stood for me on the early autumn evening when I came home from dinner to a crowded party and found Sophie Wilder sitting on the half-collapsed leather couch near that antique aquarium in the far corner of Gerhard's living room. I had been thinking a lot about Sophie, she's long been someone I think about, so I had an immediate sense, one I never entirely shook throughout all that followed, that I had summoned her to me. So far as I knew, she'd been gone from New York since her split with Tom, and now she was here. When I'd heard that her marriage was over, I'd wanted to reach out, but I wasn't sure how to go about it. Then I'd learned that she'd left town. There'd been some speculation over her whereabouts. She was at a writer's colony, not Yaddo or McDowell, but one of those obscure ones out west. She had gone to work for an NGO in Africa. She was living in a convent near her childhood home in Connecticut. For all that, it made sense to me that she should appear now on Gerhard's couch. I felt no surprise as I crossed the open space that occupied most of the house's first floor, only a shiver of delight and an appreciation for the narrative shapeliness of it. That which was supposed to happen had happened. Charlie, she called, and she floated up to meet me. She had grown her black hair out long, and it softened a bit the usually sharp lines of her pale face. Otherwise, she seemed unchanged from the girl I'd known. She leaned in to kiss me on the cheek. How are you? I asked. She took a step back, leaving her left hand to rest carelessly against my collarbone as if she'd forgotten it there. And she considered the question. This was something I only then remembered about her, the habit she had of taking everything I said seriously, even small talk, so that I wanted always to be my best self around her. I remember, too, how this habit occasionally became suffocating, as the constant demand to be your best self naturally does. Isn't it a funny thing, she said, as if she'd been caught out at something. I came into the city for the day, just to go to some galleries, and I ran into your cousin in the street. Max came in from the kitchen then, carrying two drinks, an unlit cigarette in the crook of his lower lip, Sophie withdrew her hand from my shoulder, bringing it to her face almost protectively, and I thought, yes, Max. Another thing about her that I'd almost forgotten. The brief uh, water break here is the reading equivalent of the Three Dots section break in the book. So That was a little bit funny. It wasn't very funny, but um In the beginning there was only the name. Ten of us had been admitted to the Introduction to Fiction workshop my freshman fall at New Hampton, a small liberal arts college in central New Jersey, but only nine arrived for that first class. Our professor, a near famous novelist, called our names alphabetically, finishing with Sophie Wilder. No one answered. The following week, she was still not there, and we started to wonder. An otherwise undistinguished school, New Hampton was known for the novelists and poets it had gathered to teach its undergraduates, and many aspirants turned down more prestigious colleges to study with them. After enrolling, you had to submit a second application for the writing program so that a student who had come to New Hampton solely for these workshops could still be shut out of them. To those of us who'd made the cut, it was hard to imagine someone had been accepted and not shown up. The third week, she appeared. Even if she hadn't missed our two classes, she would have stood out to me. I want to say that she looked more adult than the rest of us, more experienced, but this isn't quite so. In fact she seemed terribly uncomfortable, as though there against her will. One might have expected such a person to be shy or unprepared, but when a professor asked her a question, she answered with articulate care. She had considered opinions about all the work we discussed that week, but she would have let those opinions go unspoken had she not been forced to participate. She became more comfortable as the semester passed, but this pattern continued unchanged. She never commented voluntarily, but she always had something to say. The rest of us spoke as much as we could, mostly to impress our professor, which turned out to be little use. Sophie was the only one he took seriously. Whatever the cause of her early absences, he didn't hold them against her. As the weeks passed, he pushed more and more frequently for her thoughts, often giving her the last word on our work. It was difficult not to resent her for this, though she did nothing to ask for this treatment and took no apparent pleasure in it. In the second month of the semester, Sophie's turn to submit work came, and she distributed a 75-page story to the class. Here was another thing to resent. Not that she was capable of writing at such length, though there was that. Few of us could sustain a narrative much longer than 10 pages, but that she would impose such writing on us. Her thoughtful responses throughout the semester now seemed designed to justify this imposition and justify they did. After all her attention, it would have been shameful to show up to class without a proper reaction to this stack of paper, a novella really, too thick for a staple or a standard paper clip. I sat out in the courtyard near my dorm the day before that week's workshop, smoking parliaments and reading those pages. It was a kind of gothic tale about a young boy and girl brother and sister, though this was never said outright, living by their wits in a large, empty mansion in the woods. Their parents were never mentioned, their absence never explained. In the middle of the story, a pack of wild animals surrounds the house, keeping the children from foraging for food in the woods. The animals howl through the night so that the girl and boy can't sleep. Days pass, the cupboards empty, and the two children sag with exhaustion. Finally, the boy descends without explanation to the cellar, where a shotgun with ammunition is waiting for him. This gun, the story suggests, is some kind of legacy the boy has avoided taking up before then, but now he has no choice. The boy brings the gun outside, and over the course of ten pages, he shoots and kills all the animals. Then he goes upstairs to his bed. While he sleeps, the girl digs a pit in which she buries the dead. When she has finished, she washes herself deliberately with an air of ceremony before heading to the bedroom she shares with the boy. She stands over him, watching him sleep. He has left the shotgun, his shotgun now, leaning against the door frame. She takes it up and shoots the boy. Then she curls up beside him and closes her eyes. In class the next day, I looked at the author of this strange tale and discovered that she was beautiful. This fact had been slow to reveal itself because, for all her beauty, Sophie wasn't quite pretty. To find her so attractive suggested a kind of refinement on my part, I thought, like appreciating some quietly elegant story that bored the rest of the class. No one could possibly have called her cute which was how desirable, desirable girls were universally described on campus. But she made the cute girls seem meretricious in their cuteness, with her boyishly short, dark hair, her skin pale except where it was lightly freckled, on those high cheeks that despite their fullness seemed to struggle under the weight of her eyes. Her nose was long and sharp, and I suspect that this feature concealed her beauty from me at first, though it was a key to its richness once discovered. The light in the October air was still summer-sharp but turning somber, and she wore a thick blue cable-knit sweater, out of style and over-large, something a father throws over a little girl when they've both been surprised by the cold. The sleeves were pushed up above her elbows, and both forearms were lined with wide wooden bracelets of every shade of green and gray. Throughout the half hour we spent on her work, she kept her eyes on the table in front of her. It was almost immediately clear that we were all impressed, but she seemed desperate for the discussion to be over. I tried to respond as she would have, with carefully considered remarks, but I lost the thread of my thoughts while watching her squirm on the other side of the room. When I came to myself, I found that I had been babbling on, and the rest of the class looked nearly as embarrassed as she did. I trailed off then, and our professor said a few closing words before letting us go. She caught up to me as I crossed the few blocks that separated the Fine Arts Center from the rest of campus, and she shadowed me silently as my shame deepened. She no longer seemed nervous or uncomfortable, only a little annoyed, though she was the one intruding on me. I'm Sophie, she said eventually, without prompting, as if it had just then occurred to her that we might talk while we walked. Charlie, I answered. You're from the city. This was not a question but a statement, one not entirely directed at me as though she were filling in my backstory while I listened. We had given our hometowns when introducing ourselves on the first day of class but she hadn't been there so I didn't know when she'd learned this about me. Did you like growing up in New York? I'm glad I'm here now, I said. My father had been sick throughout my high school years, and he died only a few months before I headed off to college. I felt guilty about leaving my mother alone, though I couldn't imagine staying with her. She'd been unhappy long before she'd had any reason for it that I could understand, and after my father's death, her mute suffering filled the atmosphere of that apartment, of her life. You like the beats? This too had come from class when we'd been asked to name our influences. Max had given me his copy of Dharma Bums a few years earlier, around the time that my father got sick, and I had thrown myself into Kerouac and Ginsberg and Burroughs and even Gary Snyder and Lucian Carr and Gregory Corso. They had been a great solace, for they suggested the life I might have someday, when being orphaned would be a kind of existential condition from which to make great work, rather than just another species of loss. Burroughs is pretty good, she went on, making a concession I hadn't demanded. Most of the rest is shit. She expected a response, but I had none, so she continued. There's no control, no sense of form. They romanticized their methods as if we should read how they wrote instead of what they wrote. Eventually it all just turns sentimental, like a conversation with a sloppy drunk. No one I knew, certainly no one our age, spoke this way about books. She made this kind of talk seem like one of the great excitements of our new, near-adulthood lives, like being able to spend our days and nights as we wished. She smiled, waiting for me to fight back on behalf of these writers I was supposed to admire, but the authority of her tone overwhelmed me. To be honest, I didn't read all that much then, although books had been prized in my home, and I'd said from a young age that I'd wanted to write. Mostly, I read what Max told me to read, since he was a year older and his tastes were beyond reproach. I see what you mean, I said, which was a weak start, but true. As soon as she'd pronounced her verdict on the books I'd lived with for the past three or four years, I understood it to be just. But my concession disappointed her. She expected a defense. It took a long time to understand this about Sophie. She never wanted submission. She wanted an even-handed fight. It didn't much matter to her whether she won or lost. We didn't say all that much for the rest of our walk. I asked where she was heading, and I discovered that we lived in the same building, though I hadn't seen her there before. I felt then, for the first time, that unsurprised feeling that returned when I found her on Gerhard's couch, as if from then on, whoever was writing us down would take care to keep us near each other, to return us to each other's stories, even when all the forces of convention and plausibility spoke against it. She took a pack of cigarettes from her bag and offered one to me. While we smoked and walked, we occasionally passed people we knew. One of us would stop to talk, and the other would wait, and in this way we went from being two people who had happened to leave class at the same time, to two people going somewhere, together. If I could be just one thing now, that would be it. Someone going somewhere with Sophie Wilder. There wasn't a particular occasion for the party at Gerhard's that night. We were often celebrating in those days, and there was rarely an occasion, but a pretty good crowd had assembled. Sophie and Max and I stood for a moment within it, facing one another beside Gerhard's aquarium. Max gave Sophie the drinks, freeing his hands to light his cigarette. Then he took one back and touched his glass to hers. So far as I knew, Sophie hadn't had a drink in years since taking to marriage and to God. But perhaps all that was over now that she and Tom had separated. As for Max, he always stayed Max. If anything, he became more Max-like, so that it was natural that he should depend on everyone to be just as he'd always known them to be. Sophie took a long sip from her glass and leaned lightly against him. I noticed then that they were both drunk. I took a cigarette from Max before heading to the kitchen there were four or five people assembled there, none I'd ever seen before, all surrounding a tall, thin guy about my age, wearing a bow tie and a tuxedo shirt with plastic studs over an outlandishly tight pair of black jeans. His mustache, my mustaches, I could almost hear him calling it, was waxed. So I asked Wes what kind of palette he was thinking of using this time. He was saying as I entered, I told him I really dig the palettes that he chooses. I pushed through the crowd to the cabinets and the sink. Dude, the guy in the tuxedo shirt said to me, I think we're supposed to use those. He gestured with a tattooed finger to a sleeve of red plastic cups on the counter. Thanks, I said, continuing my search in the cabinet for a clean glass. I live here. I mixed the vodka soda, more vodka than soda, which I drank while standing over the sink. I was suddenly very tired of these parties that occupied so much of my life or else I realized suddenly that I had grown tired of them long ago. I wasn't sure if I was done with them because Sophie had appeared or if Sophie had appeared because I was done with them and so ready for her to come back. In the living room, Max was introducing Sophie to Jeff, a fact checker at his magazine. So, Jeff said, you knew Blakeman before he was famous. What on earth was he like? Everyone called Max Blakeman. Sometimes even I did it, though it was my own name. I was always famous, Max insisted, even when no one had heard of me. This line had been funny once, before, you have no idea what it's like to deliver that line and not get a laugh, and then describe it as funny in the book, but at any rate, uh, it's, I got, that's, I appreciated that. It seemed that it was funny again, now that this possibility had passed. Max's college roommate, Rick Tanner, who now worked in a gallery in Chelsea, lightly set Jeff aside. Sophie Wilder, he said, and he kissed her on both cheeks. Fucking hell, it's been years. I heard you got married. We split up, Sophie said. Do you know who else split up? Rick asked, speaking no longer to Sophie but to the others collecting around her. Henry and Clara. They seemed like a perfect couple, some dutiful straight man protested. She practically had her head in the oven, Rick said. I mean, Henry's the Ted Hughes of management consultants. Everyone but Sophie laughed at this, and I took the opportunity to approach her. How have you been? You already asked me that, she said, and you still haven't answered. Fair enough. Let's table the matter pending further review. How about yourself? I'd been doing well enough, all things considered, but I didn't tell her that. Instead, I said, I've missed you. It was a ridiculous thing to tell her after all these years, but true. And I missed her more now that she was right there in front of me. She raised a hand and placed her palm against my cheek. Then she brought it down and said, it's a nice house. And the spell was broken. Gerhard, the guy who owns it, says Henry James lived here, but there's no plaque or anything. Probably, it's bullshit. James hated Washington Square when he came back to the States, Sophie said. It made him feel like he'd been amputated. I'd never heard this before, but it was just the kind of thing that Sophie knew. I was preparing my response when the room fell quiet. We both turned to see Eddie Hartley, an old friend Max and I had known since our days at St. Albert's, now a struggling actor who appeared in commercials and an occasional Law and Order episode, standing on the leather ottoman. He began to read Wallace Stevens from a book he'd taken off one of the shelves. I sang a canto in a canton, cunning coo, o cuckoo cock, in a canton of Belshazzar, to Belshazzar, putrid rock, pillar of a putrid people, underneath a willow there, I stood and sang and filled the air. The crowd around Eddie urged him on. He finished and bowed facetiously. Then he looked over to me. Your turn, Charlie. These performances, impromptu readings of modern poetry that were at the same time ironic mockeries of the sort of party where such impromptu readings might genuinely occur, were a common feature of our nights. I hadn't thought much about them before, but I was embarrassed for Sophie to see a joke made of things that had once mattered so much to us. Eddie handed me the book. I stood on the ottoman and gave a humorless reading of the Emperor of Ice Cream that took the life out of the crowd just as I had hoped it would. I stepped down with the book still in my hand and headed back to where I had been standing with Sophie, but she had disappeared. In the kitchen, I found only the same group of strangers collected in a conspiratorial huddle around the oven. As I entered, a few stepped aside to reveal the one in the bow tie. He held a screwdriver with which he had removed two of the knobs from the stove. Now he was working on a third. When he saw me watching, he stopped. Sorry, man, he said, just fucking around. Be my guest, I told him. We don't cook. I poured another vodka. Back in the living room, I asked Jeff if he knew where Sophie had gone. I think she left with Max, he said. You're up, I told him, handing him the book of poems. Then I took a seat on the couch beside the aquarium to watch Gerhard's beautiful fish and ask myself, not for the first time or the last, what happened to Sophie Wilder. Thank you. uh, yeah, so I can do questions. I want to say quickly uh, about that Wallace Stevens poem, that um, my reciting it without looking at the page is not um, about showing off, or not merely about showing off. Um, it's. Um, like a month before the book was getting ready to get published. That's the first stanza of a poem called Country Words, which is uh, one of my favorite Wallace Stevens uh, poems. And it's three stanzas. So it's a good chunk of the poem. Um, And we had that whole stanza in the book until like a month before the book came out when someone decided that that was too much of the poem to be fair use and that we didn't have the rights to it. And I was like, well, could we try to get the rights? Maybe, you know. And anyway, there was all this, there, there was the potential of dealing with the Wallace Stevens estate and paying all this money and nobody wanted to do it. So they said, well, we could just do like two lines of the poem and that would be fair use. Um, so when I think of this chapter, it has this whole stanza in it. But the stanza is not actually on the page. So that's like a a DVD extra that you guys got. <laughs> um, does anyone have any questions? People should not. Yeah. Where does come in? Where does come in? Oh yeah. So 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 it's mentioned only in passing in this chapter um, uh, that Sophie had had taken to God. Um, Much of the story is about her conversion to Catholicism and then um, some, basically about what happened in these intervening years between when they were in college together and had this falling out and then her abrupt return to his life. Um, So the book is told in alternating chapters. Um, All of the odd number chapters are in this first person um, told by Charlie Blakeman um, and set kind of around Washington Square. And, you know, it has some elements, as this chapter obviously does, of uh, what might now fairly be called the genre of the sad young literary man novel. Um, the The even chapters are uh, third person, um, the tone is very different, and they're told from Sophie's perspective, um, and um, and Charlie appears in them basically not at all. Um, and in the process, without sort of giving you my own interpretation of my book, um, there are some elements of, of critiquing the kind of novel that the other chapters sort of represent, which is a you know obviously a tricky game to play, and um, there ha- at least some reviewers have essentially reviewed it as the as the book that is in these first person chapters um, and uh, been a little bit annoyed with it for that reason. They are indeed tired of comfortable young white guys from New York. Um, but the, the so the Sophie chapters, are, are, there's a lot about Catholicism and her conversion to Catholicism and about her faith. Um, there's very little of that in the Charlie chapters for the reason that it is part of Charlie's dilemma that he basically has no capacity for faith himself. So the, the fact that Sophie has made this decision is part of what has estranged her from him. He just doesn't understand it, essentially so um, yeah any other questions? I
1: have one sure um, the story that Sophie writes in that last yeah. um, sort, of, sort of a little parable yeah. um, would you say that there's some sort of and I don't want to give away the book or anything but is, is there some sort of um, meaning from that or would you say it's more just sort of like a, almost like a dream impression or something is there you
0: Yeah, so without I now I definitely don't want to get into like telling people how to read the book. But what I will say is that that story tr- when you're doing the describing a story that someone has written within the story that you've uh, written, there's a, there's there's a lot of different things you can do with that. Um, there's also um, if you want it. To impress people within uh, the within the novel, that's also like a challenge. You have to make it seem like um, uh, like it has to, to 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 move people a little bit. If you're then going to show these characters moved by it, um, it's a little bit like describing your own jokes as funny within your book, and then having to go around the country reading them to people who don't laugh at them, and then read the part where you call them funny. Um, so. So that was something I labored over a lot, with different possibilities for different. Uh, s- there were different stories that went in there. Ultimately, what I wanted was not just the version that kind of was the best outside of context, like the version that was most likely to make people say, "Oh wow, this person seems like she's within this world of this book, she's an interesting writer or has an interesting mind." I wanted the story also to have thematic resonance to the rest of the book. So, um, I'm not going to tell people what I think that, like, the resonance is, or how they should, or what the themes of the book even are, but, but, um, uh, but the answer is yes, that was part of the idea in doing that. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah.
1: Um, I get the impression, that maybe I'm wrong, but, um, the fair... It'll be a fair part of the book that talks about their time in college. Yeah. And um, I was just wondering, like, why you chose like a totally
0: fictional college as opposed to like a, what a real like Colorado school. Um. Well, so I I didn't like, because I didn't go to a small liberal arts college. If I was going to set it at an actual one, I was going to like, it's kind of a ballsy thing to do and like people who went to the school are gonna be like, it's not like that at all. And like you have to, it's also just like there's just like a lot of research to be done, right? Um, And I gave it some of the like the campus, some of the physical elements of the college where I went, but I did not want it to be set at that college. So, um, uh, yeah, so I just decided to make a place up. Um, and it's also like, some readers will find that more distracting. Oh, this is a place that doesn't actually exist, but I think a lot of, for a lot of, my hope is for most readers it's less distracting, because they're not comparing it to the real life analog, you know. So, um, but I particularly wanted it to be a place that neither of these people would have wound up save for its, for its writing um, program. So, um, yeah, yes, questions. yeah? What does the word meritricious mean? Um, it, it, prostitution? Uh, what? No, it, 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 it means it's like a, uh, like fool's gold, it means something that has a kind of ch- a kind of like cheap, uh, crass. Um, superficial-like quality of beauty but doesn't have uh, depth to it essentially. Um, it's actually a word that um, Fitzgerald uses in describing Daisy. He says that she has a meretricious beauty and there's this idea which is the a meretricious beauty is the kind of beauty that a guy like Jay Gatsby would go for, essentially. Um, so, so in a, some ways in Saying that Sophie does not, is not of the meretricious type of beauty, um, that's also a resonance that I was trying to apply there. And then, um do you have characters major or minor based on people <laughs> Yes, around? I do. I do. Who have pa- uh, uh, passing scenes in the book. Um and uh and one of them uh who go whose first name is Morgan in the book um plays actually a much larger role in the novel that I'm working on now. Um in which um I don't want to give away any too many spoilers, but people will have forgotten this by the time, you will not have forgotten it, but the rest of the room will have forgotten it by the time it comes out, but um, he brokers the sale of a sex tape. Uh, so, so you have that to look forward to, Mr. Morgan. Uh, yeah.
1: give us a general summary of what you're
0: working on? It's about a guy who sells a sex tape, yeah, that is, and the sale is brokered by HUD. Uh, um, yeah. No. So. So. Actually. No. I. I can. I. Sh- it's. It's like. You're. You're. Constantly warned not to talk about where you think your next novel is going to go when you're halfway through because something's going to change and you're going to look foolish. But, it involves the character Eddie Hartley who gets up and reads as well Stephen's poem, who's a struggling actor at this time. Um, and it evol- involves a, 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 a struggling actress, ex-girlfriend of his who actually succeeds and makes it big. Um, and it involves... Um, a videotape of an intimate moment between them that he has and what he ultimately chooses to do with that. Um, So it's set, it's got a lot of the same characters in it, it's set in a lot of the same world, but the tone is very different, I think. Um, But all that is liable to change, you know, I could could take place on the moon by the time I'm done. I'm like a year into what will probably be like a several year process of writing the next one. Did you have any idea in
1: your head of like the next book when you started writing this? No,
0: no, no, not at all. And I didn't think when I was like creating this character, this uh, character of Eddie, who just has a total cameo in this book. Like I'm, I'm putting him there so I can use him later. But I, you know, some of my favorite books are those early Evelyn Waugh novels, *File Bodies* and *Decline and Fall*, and um, in you know *Black Mischief* and *Put Out More Flags*. And they, they. they involve a lot of the same characters, um, and these are these kind of British bright young things characters who were characters that I was thinking about while writing this book. Also, the way that Wad deals with faith, and deals with Catholicism, was very important to me. So, so anyway, was a, was a big one for me. So, and that's one of the things I liked. So it. W- once I had an opportunity to recycle characters in the way that he did, um, I was eager to do it. But I wasn't trying to put things in this book that I would somehow like make good on later. You know, you want each book to be a self-contained whole. You know, I don't, I don't want there to be anything in this book that you, you know, that I'm, I'm placing there in order to, you know, um, fulfill it in some future book you know get them get em hooked with the first one yeah it's a smart sales strategy unless people don't like this book in which case it's a terrible sales strategy yeah but it's all about the franchises right yeah
1: is
0: this yeah so i don't know if that's if that's a type out here as well as it is in. uh In Brooklyn, in particular, in lower Manhattan. But um, yeah, it's set in 2003, actually. Um, It's pretty precisely dated, not for any particular reason except that, um, I don't know if you guys remember, in the summer of 2003, there was this enormous blackout in the Northeast that took out the entire Northeast. And the blackout features in the book. So this is now happening, this party is happening at the beginning of the summer. Uh, and, I'm sorry, I, t- I, I take that back. That the, the, the the Sophie chapter start at the beginning of the summer, and then the blackout will feature prominently in those chapters. Um, so yeah, that was the setting. But it was interesting because, uh, things, I mean, things changed, have changed a lot since 2003, more than you would think, such that I had to do some amount of kind of getting myself back there, and not just thinking that because I was like going to work in lower Manhattan, like two blocks from Washington Square, that I could just walk around and look around me and be like, this is the world of my novel, you know? It's, it's a different world. And actually, one of the things with this sort of hipster walk-on is that, like, a guy like that would come into a party in 2003, but there would st- he'd still be a little bit of a surprise to... P- he wasn't a caricature yet, you know? Um, so. Um, I apologize if there are any guys like that in the store now, but... Um, so so that was something too. <laughs> um, that like, that like it wasn't quite a type yet, or at least not in the same way uh, that it is now, you know? Um, and yeah, I think this was like back when it was cool to listen to Rumors, and now it's cool to listen to Tusk, so you have to like keep these distinctions in mind when writing uh, uh, writing about the near past. Um, is that, I'm happy to keep blabbing if people want to listen, but if you sure. don't feel like you have to ask more questions, just to ask them. Okay, thank you guys very much. Thanks, we're gonna set up a table here, so if you would like a copy of the book, either book, we have them at the register back here. Feel free to get one. Just oh, give okay. us a second to transition. Yes? Can you
1: say a little more about your first book? Sure. Just what
0: it is. Oh yeah, so my first book is a memoir called The Whole Five Feet, which is about a year I spent reading this great book set, the Harvard Classics. Um, I actually was in doing an interview today where a guy was asking about my first book, which I have not been doing a lot of talking about since I've been doing this. Um, and he teased out ways in which, like, although the books are very, very different, uh, they have a lot of the same elements in them, which I actually had not really occurred to me. Um, but there's a lot about faith in the first book. There's a lot about people living through books, which is what these characters are doing. Um, there's a lot about illness in both books. Um, while I was reading this great book set, I was also caring for an aunt of mine, a beloved family member who was dying. Um, and this book involves the caring, caring for a dying relative. Um, so, yeah, if you if you like what happened to Sophie Wilder, you'll love the whole Five Feet. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it, but, yeah, so that's what it is. It's a memoir. Um, uh, and, yeah. Thank you. Right around.